All right, so welcome back to the study. This is lesson three entitled Solomon's Glorious Temple. And uh, as I prepared this Bible study, I realized you probably should have done this in three lessons rather than one because there's just so much content here, so much theology and typology of the temple. Uh, I will recommend one fantastic book. It's much more in-depth than the Bible study commentaries that I have for you in your syllabus for this course. But I'll mention here to you right now, uh, Dr. Stephen Smith has a great book called The House of the Lord. You can find it on Amazon almost anywhere. It's pretty thick, um, pretty in-depth, but it's, it's absolutely fantastic. So if you really like the idea of the, the well, the theology and the significance, the typology, the symbolism of the temple and rooted in salvation history and the various covenants, things that I'm going to introduce to you here in this lesson, by all means, pick up Dr. Smith's book, The House of the Lord, put it on your bookshelf, and you can read uh, read that. Devour it in one sitting, which is probably unlikely, but, but you can just devour it at your own pace. It's a fantastic book. All right. So what are we going to do in this particular lesson? We're looking at chapters five through eight. Uh, it's the high point of really, I would argue, and I think that it is very defensible. These chapters are the high point of the entire Old Testament period. Um, this whole construction of the temple for the worship of God by Israel, the invitation to the Gentiles to participate in that worship. It is a period of peace and prosperity. It is absolutely wonderful. It is the climax. It is the apex of all of the Old Testament salvation history before Christ. So it's very, very significant. So in these short chapters here, I'll make a couple connections with uh, Chronicles. But in these four short chapters, five, six, seven, and eight, there's a lot of details into the construction of the temple, um, high points of what, not just the construction of the temple, but a lot of what Solomon himself does for his own palace, the palace for his uh, bride, his Egyptian princess. We'll talk about that. So what we're going to do in this lesson is go through the highlights of those chapters looking at the construction of the temple. We're going to be looking at the dedication of the temple. And then, so that'll be more or less the first half of the lesson. And then the second half of the lesson, I want to spend some time looking at the theology of the temple, how it is a summation and a perfection uh, of, up until this point of all the previous covenants. And then we're going to look, of course, at the typology with Jesus Christ and his church, because that is what the temple is pointing forward to. Jesus Christ, the true temple and the mystical body of his church and all individual believers who are, as St. Peter says, living stones built into that temple. So that's the second half is looking at the theology and the typology. So you can see already we have, we have a lot to talk about. This is going to be a lot of fun. So uh, without any further ado, let's continue where we left off in chapter 5. Uh, the last lesson, just super duper quickly, 30-second recap here. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 in the last lesson is all about Solomon becoming king and the obstacles and roadblocks, the drama that took place for him to become king with his brother Adonijah, making a request for the throne. And yet Solomon establishes his kingdom. He eliminates his threats, uh, the threats to the kingdom. Uh, his, his mother is the queen mother, the Gebi Rah. We talked about all the typology for that. And Solomon asks for wisdom, and he begins to rule with great wisdom. So much so that people came from all over in the first years of his reign, really, because as we're going to see in just a moment, if, I hope I don't forget to say this, uh, but the construction of the temple took place in the fourth year of his reign. So early on in his reign, people are finding out about Solomon and his great wisdom, and they're coming from all over. Queen of Sheba, Sheba is the great example of that. So we ended off in chapter four with Solomon being the... The, the recognized king of the hill, if you want to call him that. He's the king of kings in the region at this time. And everybody is trying to uh, have allegiances with him and have covenants with him. And he's beginning to marry other women uh, in these allegiances. And that's a red flag we talked about. So in any case, that is where we're picking up now. We're in chapter five. 
1 Kings chapter 5, if you want to flip your Bibles to that particular point. And this is going to be all the instructions and preparations and building materials that Solomon collects for building the temple. But there's a couple of things I want to share with you before we look at this text. The first of which is when we get to the story of the temple, a lot of students don't realize that this was not an idea that Solomon just came up with in his own brain, in his own wisdom. Right? And people do know, of course, that David desired to build a temple. This is all back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And so David wants to build the temple, and the Lord says, no, your son's going to do it. I'm going to share with you 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We're going to go through some of those details just momentarily. Um, but it's not like Solomon just says, okay, my dad wanted to build a temple. He wasn't allowed to. Now this is my responsibility. So here we go. Let's build this temple. The construction of the temple in Jerusalem has been part of God's providence ever since Israel left Egypt in the story of the Exodus. The Mosaic Tabernacle, uh, which if you go back to this, the book of Exodus, you remember that after uh, Israel establishes this covenant with God on Mount Sinai in chapter 24, right afterwards, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain and receives this heavenly blueprint, a structure of what the tabernacle is supposed to be like, because the tabernacle is really a participation in the heavenly liturgy. And I highly encourage you to go back to the Exodus Bible study. That's, I think, going to be lesson 10 in the Exodus Bible study, where I go through all the theology of the tabernacle itself, the various stages of salvation history that are represented there, the signs and the prefigurements and the types of the Holy Trinity that are present there. There's, there's just so much theology in the tabernacle that's going to be taken up here when we talk about the temple as well. But the tabernacle itself and the blueprint that Moses receives on Mount Sinai, that was always meant to be temporary, really. And God's providence, as we're going to see here, I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy chapter 12. In God's providence, God wanted to set aside a central place of worship for all of Israel to come and adore him. Like This is ultimately what was going to be laid out in the Mosaic Law, because there's a, there's a long story behind this, and you have to go back to Deuteronomy and, and, and see this in the Bible study there. Um, but Moses knew that Israel was incapable of worshiping God throughout the entire land and that there's this concession that needed to be taken, that needed to take place, that there's going to be this central location where all the sacrifices would take place, where the Levites would serve in order to help govern Israel in this religious way so they wouldn't fall into idolatry, the idolatry of the nations that were inevitably going to be left amongst them in the land. So they're not supposed to be worshiping like I should say, they're not supposed to be offering sacrifices to God and all these various other altars because it was going to be corrupted by paganism. So all along, there was going to be set apart this special place for worship. And this is in Deuteronomy chapter 12. I do have a couple other passages for you here in the notes, like Exodus 15. Um, but let me just read for you a little bit of Deuteronomy 12, verses 10 through, four, verses 10 through 14. And you'll see here how what we're studying in 1 Kings is the fulfillment of what Moses laid out back in the Exodus story. Okay. So Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10 says this, but when you go over to the Jordan to live in the land, which the Lord, your God gives you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, and you should circle that by the way, the word rest is really important. When he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you live in safety, then to the place. Now the word place is mentioned many times here in chapter 12, but it says then to the place, which the Lord, your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the offerings that you present, and all your votive offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your servants and manservants, menservants, uh, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take heed that you do not offer your burnt offerings at every place that you see, 
But at the place which the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings. There you shall do all that I'm commanding you. Okay, so let's just stop right there. This is very significant. You, Israel, are not allowed to go worship God wherever you want because you're, you're, you're prone to corruption. So God is going to select a place amongst the tribes. We now know that the place is Jerusalem. All right, for a number of reasons. We talked about the significance of the city of Jerusalem a lot when we did our Bible study on First and Second Samuel. When David makes Jerusalem his capital, there are a lot of religious and theological reasons why that's important. But there's, of course, secular or political reasons as well. And so the place is now established from the tribe of Judah. All right, so what Moses says back in Deuteronomy is now, being, is now taking place. And note that word rest. I, I told you to circle it or highlight it if you'd like to do that in your Bibles. You're not going to get struck by lighting, lightning if you highlight in your Bibles. I always tell students, highlight, circle, block stuff off, underline it, cross-reference it, and, and really make the Bible your own. Well, that word rest is a word that's repeated many times throughout the Pentateuch, beginning in Genesis, because rest is much more than just, hey, you know what, I'm really tired and I just got to take a nap. You know, I, I'm just, I'm like for right now at the time of this recording, I just got over, I flew for the first time in my life. I just had the flu and it knocked me out for two weeks. Well, I'm tired all the time. So I just need some rest to recover from my illness. It's much more than that. It has, it's a spiritual rest. It is a rest that, that you have in the presence of God. It echoes the Sabbath day of rest, right? The Sabbath rest that God establishes on the seventh day of creation. That's what this is all about. So it's more than just rest in the absence of war also, because that's what it's talking about when you have rest from all your enemies round about. It's more than that. It's the enemies round about are, are, are squashed for the purposes for, for you to have covenant communion with God and to worship him without fear. All right. That's what this is all about. So the, or I'm going to see this is going to be repeated in First Kings chapter 5 in Solomon's own words as well. So keep that in mind. Rest is a prerequisite. And it's also, I should say, the purpose. Rest from all their enemies round about. David establishes this. Solomon solidifies this rest as well. But it's also for the purpose of having covenantal rest with God. All right, very good. So another thing I'd like to share with you before we dive into the text here is that, again, another misconception is that Solomon, so David wants to build the temple. Solomon says, okay, clarifying the point that, no, this has been, this is in God's mind. It's in God's providence all the way going back to the Exodus. The other thing to clarify here is that Solomon just gets up in the fourth year of his reign and he says, all right, time to start preparing to build the temple. Well, actually, what's interesting to know is that David himself, if you read the parallel accounts in Chronicles, David began the work long before Solomon did. Because while it's true, God says, you're not going to build the temple for me. David's like, all right, I'm not going to build a temple. But that doesn't mean I can't pave the way. That doesn't mean I can't, you know, get some things moving in order for Solomon, my son, to actually build the thing. And so this, I think, is really, really interesting for people to understand what David, David's role in building the temple was quite significant. And so on this point, I want to flip ahead to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. You're going to find this in 1 Chronicles 21 through 22, as well as chapters 28 and 29. The references are right here in the, the lesson notes. But let me just read this here for you. I think it's, it's really, really interesting to understand how involved David was and really how much David did to prepare Solomon for the construction of the temple. Like this was the highlight, I think, of David's life. Remember, David was a, he he had a heart after God. He was the only person described as a man after God's own heart. And so the center, I think, of really David's life is love of God, to worship God. All the Psalms that he wrote down were to praise God and thank him for his blessings. 
So even before, long before he dies, he's preparing the way for Solomon to build the temple. So check this out. Let's read here at the end of 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 28 through 22. Let's just read a little section. So verse 28, at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite, he made his sacrifices there. Now really quickly, let me just pause myself here for a second and say, this is referring to the story at the end of 2 Samuel. And you'll remember this from the Bible study we did on that. Hopefully if you did that Bible study. David made a mistake. He sinned in, de- in desiring a census of his entire people. The census was more than likely to determine his military might, which is a big no-no. And you can go back to that study and I'll explain why that's the problem. But once the census had taken place, David realized that he had sinned and he needed to be punished for it. And he chooses a pestilence and many people die. Well, at the end of 2 Samuel, he goes to this particular this threshing floor here of the Jebusite, Ornan, and he offers sacrifices. He buys the land from the dude in order to offer these sacrifices, and he stops the pestilence. Well, this is going to be the precise location here on you know the little mountain of Jerusalem, Zion, where he's going to construct the temple, okay? So that's what that's referring to. Let me read on in verse 29. And I, by the way, I have a little footnote, uh, footnote number one in your notes. We'll clarify that. So verse 29, for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Okay, so like I just explained to you, after he offers this incense right there at the threshing floor, he decides this is where the temple is going to be built. All right, now let's read on in chapter 22, verse 1. Or verse 2, excuse me. David commanded to gather together the aliens who were in the land of Israel. Those aren't like Martians. Those are just the ex- Those are just foreigners, all right? Uh, and he set stone cutters to prepare dress stones for building the house of God. David also provided great stores of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and the clamps, as well as bronze and quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number. For the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said... Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all the lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. And in verse 6, he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me upon the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you. He shall be a man of peace, and I will give him peace, that's shalom, from all of his enemies round about, for his name shall be Shalomamen. Okay, Solomon, the word Solomon really quickly here is rooted in the word for peace. So Solomon's name means peacemaker or the peaceful one, okay? So that's why it's called Solomon, because it's going to take place in a time of peace. And Solomon will actually bring further peace. All right, moving on. Uh, I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. Verse 10, he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding. That's chokhmah, that's wisdom, which, of course, Solomon asked for, as we saw last time in the last lesson. So may he grant you discretion, understanding, chokhmah, 
that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will be, then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses for Israel, and so on and so forth. And he ends this little speech to his son saying, the Lord be with you. All right, and then Solomon said, with your spirit, and then they, and they moved on with their day. All right, so this is really interesting, I find, and I'm spending all this time talking about it. I think I find it's really, really interesting how much work David did before his death to prepare for the building of the temple. He had tons of materials gathered up, and he was preparing his son Solomon, telling him, as we saw actually in the last lesson, before he died, he had a little speech for Solomon, echoing previous speeches like Moses and Joshua and Samuel and others, saying, take heed to follow the Lord. And this is what David is saying here in 1 Chronicles again. Take heed to follow the Lord, then you will prosper, you will have wisdom, and you will build the house of the Lord. So that's pretty cool, I think, to know David's role here. Now, just wanted to spend some time clarifying those two points, probably spent too much time on that. But now let's go here to 1 Sam, or sorry, 1 Kings chapter 5 and read what Solomon does. And we're going to see a couple of connections here based on the readings I just gave to you from Deuteronomy chapter 12, as well as 1 Chronicles. So chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Kings, it says, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram saying, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord as God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set upon your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. And so he, he asks the king of Tyre, I'm going to summarize this next section here for you. He asks the king, this is a Gentile king of Tyre, right? He asks him, look, can you provide a whole bunch of lumber and labor in exchange for money to help me build the temple? Okay. And King Hiram, this king of Phoenicia says, yes, absolutely. Because he says that he loved David. Now, what that means is that he had a covenantal treaty with David and he, they had a great relationship. They had a great, you know, they had peace between their two kingdoms. And so because Hiram had his great covenantal treaty between the two kingdoms, so now that's going to continue with Solomon. So he's going to help Solomon build the temple by providing lumber and labor. Solomon in exchange is going to pay him money. And then later on, he's going to give him some cities of the north as well. But this is an incredible arrangement here of how Gentiles are involved in the building of the temple. And that is no small point at all. This is a really, really big deal because this arrangement points forward to the incorporation of the Gentiles into God's holy people for worship. That's, this, that's the whole point of calling Israel to be God's special people. I've said many, many times, even going back to our studies on uh, the books of, of Moses, God does not call Israel at the expense of all the nations. God calls Israel to be a blessing to all the nations. Israel is God's firstborn son. And as God's firstborn son, Israel is supposed to bring God's wisdom and God's law and God's goodness and love and mercy to all the nations around about them. And that's a, you, you see this, I mean, going right back to the promises that God made to Abraham. God, Abraham says to, uh, excuse me, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make of you a great kingdom, a great name. But I'm also through you, all nations will be blessed. So this is a really big deal here because the fact that King Tyre, or King Hiram of Tyre, this Gentile is so involved in the construction of the temple that foreshadows the incorporation of the Gentiles into God's people. 
That is really, really significant here. And this is what Thomas Aquinas himself says. I got a little quote for you from one of your commentaries. Excuse me. So this is what uh, St. Thomas says. The tabernacle of Moses signifies the state of the old law, whereas the temple of Solomon signifies the state of the new law. For only Jews erected a tabernacle, but the temple was built with the cooperation of Gentiles, end quote. That is, that is a really beautiful spiritual typological application by the angelic doctor here, St. Thomas, my buddy, right? one of our patron saints for scripture and tradition. Uh, it's the incorporation of the Gentiles in the, of the temple foreshadows ultimately what Christ, the new Solomon, is going to do. And at the end of this lesson, I got a great quote for you from St. Augustine on that very point. Um, but we're going to conclude with that because it's fantastic, okay? So King Hiram is involved. Haram, however you want to pronounce the name, Hiram, Haram. He is involved in this, and that is going to be a beautiful foreshadowing of the church, really. Okay, but there's a red flag in all of this. Because as you read on here in chapter 5, verse 13, it says Solomon raised a levy of forced labor out of all of Israel, and the levy numbered 30,000 men. So here, this is going to be a big problem. This is going to come back to bite Solomon, and specifically Solomon's son. We'll see this in a couple of lessons. The fact that Solomon is forcibly conscripting laborers amongst his own people is a very bad sign. Now, granted, as you read the the details here, they have to work one month on duty and they have two months back home. So two months at home versus one month on on duty. You're like, okay, well, that's not that bad. But it it is actually a problem to forcibly conscript your people to work uh, in all the various ways that he's got set forth here. Now, Samuel said a long time ago, this is what's going to happen. You want a king like all the other nations, he's going to behave like all the other nations. So this is a red flag, and we're going to see how we're going to see the consequences of this behavior in chapter 12 and the split of the kingdom. So keep that in the back of your mind. Hey, this is Dr. Nick. Thank you so much for listening to this course sample. If you enjoyed it and want to listen to the entire lesson, please become a student over at scriptureandtradition.com where you can listen to this entire course, but also all the other courses that we have available in the ST Audio Library where you can listen to them on demand, however and whenever you want. So thank you so much. God bless you and keep studying your Bible.